So this week, we're going to have more of our best nightmares, I think is the way I phrased it the first time around. And these are just condensed versions of older episodes. If you've never listened to us before, this will give you a taste of what you've missed. And if you have, this is just a, a condensed version of some of our older episodes. If you like what you hear... You never heard that episode. The name of each episode is sort of the beginning of each segment, so you can go back and find that episode and listen to it again. But, you know, just thanks for being with us on this journey, this labor of love, and thanks for listening to Nightmares on the Lost Highway. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. We're going to dive in and explore a little bit of the history of voodoo. I think it's an accepted belief that voodoo, which has evolved through the decades and even centuries, originates from somewhere in Western Africa. In particular, it seems to come up with an area called Benin in Africa. The word voodoo itself means spirit in the local Fon language of Africa. And the foundations of the religion and practice stems from ancient traditions and essentially worshiping with associated ancestors with the utmost deepest respect. This is a very humble religion in my, in my belief. Uh, very traditional in the fact with uh, some Spanish and, and other religions. Um, very honorable to ancestors who have passed upon you know before us and the belief that you can learn from their mistakes and that they would be friendly and come forward from the dead and share information and help you uh i mean come on that's that's big that's that's huge well i think what what a lot of people consider voodoo what we would call voodoo now is uh developed in in haiti between the 16th and 19th centuries and it was uh, arose from the combining of traditional religions of Western Africa with the slave trade uh, and those of Roman Catholicism. And like you said, focused on the veneration of what they call the Loa, mm-hmm. which are or ancestor spirits. Spirits, basically. Uh, so it, it is very much about focused on your ancestors and, and they become spiritual powers unto themselves. Mm-hmm. And they're there to guide as any ancestor, uh, you know, especially father, mother figure, grandparent figure would be wanting the best for their family and, and the followers. I kind of imagine it as this giant tree with that being the foundation. Well, you have this, I don't want to know, I don't want to say romanticized, but definitely this, this Hollywood version of voodoo that is all dark and evil and for bad purposes, mm-hmm. which is not what voodoo is all about. We've talked about the Loas, so I want to touch on that a little bit. We kind of we can we we can explain what that is, uh, but they they pop up in Haitian and Louisiana voodoo, uh, often referred to as the mysteries or the invisibles. 
The Loas act as intermediaries between um, Bondi, which would be French for the good god, uh, which you know the practitioners view as the supreme creator uh, who lives at a distance from humanity. Uh, the Loas act as an intermediary between Bondi and humanity. They are not prayed to, like you'd see in, in a lot of other religions, but they are more, I mean, we more like serve them, serve them, uh, offer them offerings, mm-hmm. respect them. Uh, each, each low has a very distinct personality, their likes and their dislikes, their appearance, mm-hmm. the things that they are responsible for. Right. They are specifically not deities though. They are ancestor spirits. Now, uh, practitioners, uh, typically participate in an initiation ritual that involves meeting in a temple ran by priests known as Hungans. And again, I'm going to say we're probably going to get a bunch of a few words. Yeah. Bear with us. Or priestess known as Mambos. And they venerate the Loas. One of the central rituals involves drumming, singing, and dancing to encourage possession by one of the Loa. Uh, Through this possession, practitioners believe they can communicate directly with the Loas. So they'll make offerings of fruit, blood of sacrificed animals, things like that. It sounds a lot grim. You know, again, Mm -hmm. you you talk about sacrifice. That always kind of throws a flag up in some people's minds, but they, it they do it with the utmost of respect. It does, but yes, if you if you strip away the stigmata of it, let's face it, blood is the direct source to life and the you know, the direct tie to a lot of that. That's where a lot of that comes from. But and modern practitioners of voodoo are primarily found in Haiti, although we do have communities in, in other parts of the Americas. And as Americans, we, we definitely think of New Orleans when we think Absolutely. of Voodoo. Uh, it has faced much opposition and criticism throughout its history, and it is re- voodoo is repeatedly described as one of the world's most misunderstood religions. Now, Papa Legba, we'd mentioned a little bit, he's, I think, a very interesting loa, or spirit, in the religion. Uh, his origin story comes from the Fawn people of the Dahomey, Africa area, and he is the guardian trickster of the gates of all crossroads. And as it was explained in uh, a couple interviews that I was watching Imagine every highway, every road, whether it be a country gravel road to an interstate, to railroad tracks, any type of road he would be in control of. So anything that flows, he's going to know about. That's his prominence. That's his territory. He stands at the spiritual crossroads. And he's also, uh, he gives or denies permission to speak with the spirits of the dead, Mm -hmm. uh, facilitates communication. Speech and understanding. Part of his trickster nature is that he does love riddles. Uh, and no one can speak to spirits without first off giving him an offering. Right, right. He, he is very much about the communication with the dead. He's often depicted as being wearing skull makeup, uh, smoking a cigar, top hat. Uh, as you said, very prankster-ish. Almost kind of Loki in another religion or like a genie would be. You have to be very specific with your request because with him being the trickster nature, he'll try to turn that against and use that to teach you lessons. He oftentimes is represented as carrying a cane with that cane representing the gateway between the human world and the heavens. We talked about offerings. He's especially fond of coffee or cane syrup, but sometimes just simply acknowledging him and asking him to open that door of communication is enough. Again, he's sort of fickle and trickstery. Mm-hmm. Now, one of one of the the versions you mentioned something about a, a top hat. Um, there are other versions that have him wearing a broad brim straw hat and uh, smoking a pipe, which 
Uh, Baron Samedi is is a Loa of the Dead, um, typically depicted wearing a top hat, black tailcoat, dark glasses, with cotton plugs in his nostrils. This resembles the Haitian burial preparations. So he looks like a man prepped for, for burial. Uh, frequently depicted as either a skeleton or a man with skeletal face paint. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that depiction of, of that character. The the villain in Disney's Princess and the Frog is right. very, you know, heavily inspired by the Baron. Right. Uh, he's noted for disruption, obscenity, debauchery, <laughs> and having a fondness for tobacco and rum. So he's... Often drunk. Yeah. Um, this is where in a lot of the practices you may see they'll take in rum or alcohol and spew it out and yeah, a very flamboyant party person if you will now uh the baron is the only one of the lowest that can accept an individual into the realms of the dead and spends most time in the realm of, of voodoo spirits which there, there's a name for that that i again would butcher if i tried to read it he's notorious for his outrageous behavior like i said a moment ago swearing continuously making filthy jokes to the other spirits and at their expense <laughs> Now, he, he will often be found at the crossroads between the worlds of the dead and the living. Uh, he'll make deals with mortals who want his power or that he, he takes a fancy to. He's also seen as a low of resurrection and of life. He's a giver of life. Uh, can cure mortals of their diseases and their wounds as long as he thinks it's worth his time. Uh, and it's one of his main responsibilities is to ensure that corpses rot in the ground. To stop them from coming back as zombies. As zombies, which again is one of the things very much associated with voodoo. Now, another figure I think we have to talk about when you talk about voodoo, especially the New Orleans lore, is Marie Laveau. Uh, Probably one of the best known, at least in the American version, of uh, the practitioner or religion of voodoo. Uh, Now, she created quite a following. She was even depicted and given the title as the Queen of Voodoo. Um, still to this day, her grave, uh, is decorated, adorned, people leave offerings. Uh, often they will use the symbol of an X that they will put on her crypt. And that would be like a, a wish that they had asked a favor that they had asked. And then the belief is the person, if they got their wish granted or she helped them from the dead, they would come back and circle the X. So it's kind of a living monument, if you will. Uh, of her powers and her being able to help uh, the followers. Now, she also came up with one of her creations, and I, I, I will probably butcher this, but Grigri bags. They're kind of a yeah. red bag or a pouch. Um, they usually have a mix of herbs or items that are considered blessed by a voodoo priest or priestess. Uh, so if you go to New Orleans, you might come across these and may not know the purpose of them, but it's Typically depicted as like a red velvet bag, a, a small pouch, uh, and that would be something that you would leave an offering or purchase, and that would be good luck, a good luck piece, so a lucky rabbit's foot, if you will. Uh, Marie Laveau, obviously New Orleans' most infamous or famous uh, voodoo practitioner. But tonight we're honored to have a special storyteller with us, Lauren Wren, as I call him with a unique insight on these things and more, being Native American himself. Hello, my name's Ren. Uh, I've been a friend of Eric's for a while, and I've been a, a follower of paranormal events for most of my life. Ren, if you would, just kind of tell us a little bit about your Native American history, maybe your tribe. 
my tribe is called the Menominee. It's from northern Wisconsin, 40 miles northwest of Green Bay. Uh, they were called the Menominee because they grew wild rice, being called Menomin. They very rarely starved during the winter, and uh, they were very friendly towards their sister tribes in Wisconsin, not so much towards anybody else. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, the Native Americans don't see the Wendigo as a physical being, but a spiritual one. It's supposed to be, from what was described to me, it was the spirit of starvation. And the only time it actually manifests physically is when it feeds. It only feeds on cannibals. So I think uh, before we recorded, we were talking about different movies and stuff. I know you have the, the supernatural depiction of Wendigo is, is almost an infection, like a spiritual infection. Uh, you said it was probably closer in, in concept to the movie Ravenous. So along those lines. Well, yeah, uh, in Ravenous, there was something to it when they, they ate, their wounds healed, they got stronger, uh, but you never actually heard anything about a Wendigo in the movie. Yeah. But uh, it when the Wendigo either infects you, possesses you, whatever you want to call it, it makes you want to eat people. It makes you do really strange things like you probably uh, self-mutilation. When, when they actually find the people who have supposedly been very far gone into the Wendigo possession. They're completely, they don't look quite human anymore because they've self-mutilated. And uh, they're also eating as many people as they can catch and kill. And usually the natives would just outright kill them and then burn everything around them. And then they'd leave the land because the land is is uh, like a beacon there now. It's, it's almost no like good. the land's cursed. Somewhat, yeah. Uh, it's it's not that you'll go there and get cursed. It's that the Wendigo will be drawn there the next time it comes around. I, I, if there's anything else on the Wendigo that you wanted to bring up? Well, I I, I think if we were going to ask any questions, maybe from the Wendigo to Skinwalker, I know that a lot of people think those are semi-related. Uh, I think a little bit of research will tell you they're not. But uh, do you have anything... The, the skinwalker is generally a Western thing from the Western tribes, specifically the Hopi and the Navajo. Supposedly, their medicine people learned from a spirit called the Nagloshi. That's supposed to be the skinwalker. It taught these medicine people the magic behind changing their shape with an animal skin. The things they had to do, the things the medicine people had to do, one of the examples is kill one of their own family members yeah so i heard that tended to be a rather negative thing not good magic yeah dark magic yeah dark magic to be very sure because if you were willing to go ahead and kill one of your own family members just so you could progress in your power you definitely stopped being human at the point you could change your skin so once they were a skinwalker they didn't mind eating people now, they weren't necessarily a Wendigo because yeah. of it, but it was just an inhibition that they lost after they lost their humanity. And that's why they can do a number of other things rather than just change their skin. They can make people sick, uh, like with magic, with black magic, or whatever you want to call it. Right, right. Uh, again, it's not something I myself have ever encountered, but there there is instances I've heard of where people have changed their shape due to one thing or another, like a, a curse, for example. A curse could get you to change your skin, and it wasn't a good thing for the person cursed. 
Like my tribe has a history of about 13,000 years in Wisconsin. That goes way past the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the very first civilizations in Europe. And we had tribes then going back to names, you know, meaning we knew that their name was the Menominee, you know, and that meant that all tribes had those same kind of traditions for about the same amount of time with the Southern tribes being a little less time because it took them longer to get down there than it took the Menominee to get to where they were. And that's, this was supposed to be after the last great ice age, which was, that was between 15,000 and 25,000 years ago. That's when the land bridge, the Bering Strait was actually a bridge and people could walk over it instead of right. sections of ocean that they couldn't pass. There's a lot of weird things that go on on my reservation, even to this day. Uh, there are spots you're not supposed to go to. There are things that they do that are outside of Christian tradition still. Uh, one of them would be a part of part of the Menominee population still practices the old ways of funeral, which is a, a three-day wake held in a family member's home for the deceased. They don't bring the casket with the deceased in through the door, they have to bring it in through the window. I guess in my mind, so it doesn't make the doorway a spiritual doorway. Whereas if it's just a window, you block that up and it no longer is a doorway anymore. Um, During these funerals, they cover all the mirrors in the house. Again, I suspect to cover up possible doorways that bad spirits might be able to use to come and go. But the reason I was given was so the spirit himself of the deceased doesn't see himself dead in a mirror and get frightened. Now, when my dad died, uh, they laid him out for three days. There was feasting going on on the last day. Um, me and my brothers had to bury my dad. It was That's not necessarily a traditional thing, but it was rather fulfilling for me to do that uh i would suggest that while it's a tragic event for your father to die i think a son should bury his dad it's just it it fulfills the soul to do so while we were digging we were designated a spot in a very old burial ground now it it has the normal graves just like you'd see in in any graveyard like with the crosses and headstones and stuff like that but we were designated a specific spot we dig down about three or four feet and we run into the corner of a casket. Somebody else's. Wow. We were all kind of creeped out. So what we did was we offered some tobacco to those that were already buried there as a sign of respect. We respectfully covered up their casket again. We moved it a, a foot away and continued our digging and got my dad buried. Uh, we were really grateful that we didn't run into any more because we now know. There are people buried there that have no markers because they've been burying them there for the past 200 years. For so long. That people got forgotten. Now, is there anything else that's kind of more of a unique uh, insight that you could share with us on Native American funeral rites and burial? Well, well, my mom, who's white, was invited to a fully traditional Native American funeral. That is to say, no Christian influence was held during this funeral and it was of a small child the things she had happen that she seen with her own eyes if it came from any other person 
I'd have a hard time believing it. And I follow, you know, I believe generally in the unseen. I guess I was probably like one or two, so they couldn't take me to this funeral. There were rules about this, too. There was no drunk people, no high people were allowed, and no small children. And they said it was because two spirits visit a traditional funeral. The great spirit, which is what they consider God, or a good thing, and a bad spirit comes. And the bad spirit looks for weakness. So there was no pregnant women. There was no sick people. There was no small children. Nobody drunk or high. And the elders pretty much presided over it. These were the oldest people of the tribe. Well, one of these ladies took my mom aside and started describing to her everything that was happening because it was all happening in Menominee language, not English. And well, your so, mom was kind of caught off. Kind of well, she couldn't understand a word yeah. at all. She was white. She never. Whereas this lady was like, okay, now they're doing this for this reason. Um, what happened was, is they bring out this ancient drum, which still exists. It's the Menominee drum. And it's a couple hundred years old, at least, if not four or five hundred years old. And my mom said it was beautiful beadwork on the side, intricate depicting scenes. Uh like hunting on one side, the the village on the next side. And then she described what she seen or what she thought of as aliens hmm. in the beadwork on this, this wow. drum. Wow. That took a curveball. And, and like what she described as possibly a spaceship on the other side, you know, anyway, the, the woman whose baby died, her and my mom were all good friends. We were very close to this family. In fact, I think this child who died was my first cousin. And, of course, I wasn't allowed to go because I was just a little guy. So she, the mother of the deceased says she asked to go to the bathroom. Well, at that time, they were having it at a lodge hall. The lodge hall didn't have indoor bathrooms. It had an outhouse. So she asked my mother to go along because now it's nighttime. And they go out there. They pass the, the fire bearer, which for a traditional Native American thing for the Menominee, you had to keep a fire lit for three days. And a fire had to be tended, meaning it couldn't be left unattended. Now, is this like a small campfire, a bonfire? A small campfire, sort of. You could make a big bonfire if you wanted. That wasn't frowned upon. But you'd be using a massive amount of wood. And if you know anything about heating your wood in the 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 far north, (laughs) it's money. You know, that's a lot. Like, lots of people heat their house to this day yeah, with wood. A valuable resource. Yeah. yeah. Why would which you, you don't do want to squander. Yeah. For for a funeral, it's okay to have a nice little fire. But if you had a great big bonfire, you'd be eating up a lot of firewood. So they go to the bathroom. And while they're gone at the bathroom, a drunk guy tries to get in. And he's stopped cold at the door. And he's arguing with these na- with these elders. He's native himself, but he's drunk. You're not going to let him in. And at the time, I guess, to call someone a dog back in them days was the worst thing you could, Menominee could call each other. That was just the worst insult. And he called these elders a dog. Well, the story goes that they cursed him to be a dog. Now leave now, they told him. For whatever reason, he got the message and left. Back to my mother. She goes to the bath. Well, she takes her sister, her cousin, I guess, to the bathroom. And the lady goes to sit down on the stool. And when she sits down, 
she gives out a scream, a frightened scream, because she feels cold baby feet touching her bottom when she sits down. And this just completely creeps her out. I can imagine. She's screaming. My mom's right there to counsel her, you know, oh, come on, it's okay. It's all right. And when they're coming back, they see this animal in the woods with green glowing eyes, and they swear it was the biggest wolf dog thing they've ever, my mom has ever seen with green eyes. Green eyes, that's unusual. Like glowing green eyes without a light. Now they had a flashlight, but everything I've ever seen in the woods has been like yellow eyes, orange, maybe sometimes even red. Red, yeah. Once in a while, you could catch a deer's eyes going green for like on the reflection. They'll turn their head. It'll be green. They'll turn their head. It'll be orange, but not consistently one color. Hmm. They get really scared because this animal's only feet away from them and they're terrified of it. And it's snarling and carrying on. She runs. They run back into the hall and they're and the elder stops her. What's going on? There's some kind of animal out there. And it was threatening us. And that's when the elders kind of get a little concerned. And they point to some older guys. You, you, and you. Get your rifles and go out and take care of that thing. They go out there and they shoot at it. Well, the thing runs off, apparently wounded. They never see that guy again. The guy who was cursed, they never seen again. And he lived there. So the thing carries on. And they're... they're about to wrap up and that always wraps up with a tribal song like a powwow you know beating on this drum so they go to that ancient drum and start playing my mom tells me that while they're playing the drum levitates off the floor by itself and the light shines from within the the drum onto the floor all the drummers have this scared look on their face like whoa this hasn't happened before well, not to these guys. Yeah. And they're all like, and the elders are like, keep playing. Keep playing. That's the great spirit. This is a good thing. They're blessing, they're blessing us with their presence. Keep playing. So it, they get finished with their song, and it slowly sets back down, and they finish the funeral. And that's pretty much the end of that story. This was when I was an adult. My brother and I went out hunting for the day. We were hunting for deer. Although I didn't bring a, a rifle suitable to the task, I brought a, a short-barreled 20-gauge pump. <laughs> really, I was just going out there just to go out there. I didn't really have in my mind to kill a deer. You're really not supposed to be using a 20-gauge on a deer anyway. Yeah, right. Um, so my brother gets all camouflaged up. And he's there for the deer. No questions asked. Don't, don't hinder me because I'll kick your ass is my brother's kind of attitude when it comes to his deer hunting. So he he goes, okay, Lord, you're going to go this way down the trail. There's the truck. Stay on the trail. Don't get off the trail and go that way. Walk a couple hundred yards. You'll be all right. I'm going to go that way a couple hundred yards away from the truck. So in fact, the truck was right there and we split up walking away from the truck down trails. Well, I'm out there and I guess I had the wrong attitude because I see, uh, you ever guys ever hear of a woodcock? It's about the size of a chicken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I see some woodcocks, and it's towards the end of the day, 3.30, and that's about it up there. And I go ahead and commence to blasting on these with the wrong kind of gun. 
it destroys this poor chicken thing, whatever it was. <laughs> and there's no meat to it because I'm I'm not using a slug. Obliterated it. It just perforated it. And I'm looking at it like, oh, you know, my brother's going to be pissed because now I've scared all the deer at the end of the day. <laughs> they can hear it and they get out of the way. All right, I'm going back to the truck. So I go back to the truck and I'm sitting on the tailgate and I'm looking down the trail and it it's literally like, a tunnel of woods. You know how woods can grow like that? Mm -hmm. and you're looking down oh, a yeah. tunnel. Yeah. That's how thick these woods are, even during trees of mid-fall. Yep. This is mid-fall, and it's cold now, 40 degrees or less. And way back in there, I think I see a silhouette walking at me. I thought, oh, good. My brother's coming back. He's going to be pissed, but oh, well, you know. And it's walking, and it's walking, and it's walking. It's got to be two, 300 yards away, but I could still see a silhouette. All of a sudden, it's not there. Okay, you know, maybe I didn't. Maybe it was a deer. Maybe it was something. I don't know. And uh, about 100 yards away, this thing comes back. It is colored white, like mist. It's 100 yards away, 300 feet. That's still quite a ways for my eyes to right. see. It still looks like a silhouette. And it's it's walking like a silhouette so and it's I, upright you can make out arms well, legs. no you can't make out arms and legs what you see is a silhouette of a person okay and that doesn't necessarily add to arms and legs it's just moving like someone you know walking gotcha and uh i'm like okay and it moves to about 75 feet and completely disappears and i don't mean it runs off the trail i don't mean it flies up into the sky it's gone and i'm like that's not see? my brother <laughs> that's not my brother that's the first thought and it's like oh now 50 yards away this thing comes back and i'm getting much clearer pictures of it it is a silhouette again it appears to come from out of nowhere didn't run onto the trail and it's still a silhouette but there are no features and at 50 yards you can see detail it's made of mist now what time of day is this about 3 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So sun's still up. Sun's still up, but it's far down on the horizon, but it's still daylight. Far this from is, dark. It's yeah. not Yeah, dark. it's going to be dark in an hour, but it's not by any means. There is more light here. There was more light there than there is here. Are you able to see through it? Or is no, it so thick you, that you, you cannot see through it? Okay. And I'll, tell, I'll get to that part. It walks another 10 yards, meaning it's now 65 yards away, or, you know. 65 yards away and i've got a clear sight of this thing and i don't know what the hell it is and it disappears again gone in an instant it appears about 25 yards away and now Ooh. now i probably need new britches <laughs> because now i'm seeing this thing it ain't a man it ain't your brother and it's it's not my brother and it's not an animal it is silhouette made out of mist that you can't see and it's moving closer and i'm like oh god i'll shoot <laughs> i'll shoot <laughs> i got a 20 gauge with a short range and buckshot and it is nothing wants to get close to you you could probably fend off a bear with a 20 gauge and buckshot especially when you got more than one shot it moves about five or ten yards closer and then it disappears and now the light's fading I jump in the cab and I am scared shitless. And my brother finally, you know, 45 minutes later, because now the darkness came, I can't see nothing. So if it was out there, I couldn't see it. 
He probably comes up and like beats on the window. Like, uh, imagine. Well, I hear walking through the leaves and twigs, and yeah, he comes in and he's like, "Why are you in the cab? Was that you shooting? Where, what'd you shoot?" And I tell him, you know, that woodcock over there, and he goes and looks at it, and he's pissed because this woodcock is perforated. <laughs> then I remember an old legend: if you go out to these woods with the intent on just killing something for the sake of killing it. You're going to get visited by the spirit. It is a warning. You're out here for the wrong reasons. And I'm going to make you see the 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 wisdom of not doing that. The error of your ways. Yeah, that. Wow. And that that is what I think I've seen, which it scared the hell out. I haven't been out to them woods since then. There's There's the story of Spirit Rock. Spirit Rock was said to be a man once. And the the boulder is still there on my reservation. I visit it almost every time I go up there. The story is three braves got a chance to go see the great spirit. They call it something else. It's in my neighbor. I forgot. And they each got to ask a boon of the great spirit. Well, the first guy asked for good hunting and great spirit was pleased. Okay, you, you'll always have good hunting. The next guy asked for good fishing. Again, the great spirit was pleased. The third guy got greedy. The third guy asked for everlasting life. So he could master everything. He could be a great hunter, a great fisher, a great warrior. And that displeased the great spirit. So the great spirit came down, grabbed him on the shoulder, and said, I shall turn you into a rock forevermore. You will last through the ages, and when you've worn away to nothing, there'll be no more full-blooded Menominee Indians left. Now, the rock is still there, I, and it has a great big plaque to it. They, they recognize that as the boulder. It has gotten significantly smaller since I went there, which that's kind of strange considering in the lifetime of a man, it's Normal hard for erosion a rock of a to rock or, yeah. wear yeah. away. It's probably three feet tall when I was there as a kid, and now it's almost ground level. Oh, wow. Um, I have pictures of it. I have pictures of the sign. When I was a kid and they brought me there for the very first time, it sticks out in my mind because there were all kinds of, it was nighttime when they brought me there, and there was all kinds of phosphorant, lightly phosphorant beings all around this rock, and I was terrified as a kid. And my dad was of a mind, there's nothing here. Just come with us. Oh, hmm. Because he didn't see it. I was going to say, he may not have seen it. Yeah. You being it, a child, maybe you were more open-minded well, to it. or terrified me because I didn't know what they were. Nobody else could see them. My mom couldn't see them. And they were like, just put the offering down and let's go. And I didn't want to go nowhere. <laughs> like fighting them, dragging against them. And, of course, they brought me right to the rock, like, you know, holding a kitten. You know, <laughs> nothing I could do. And here I am, just screaming my head off, like, no, no. And they couldn't get me to even make an offering, which a lot of Menominee make offerings of drink and smoke to the rock. Yeah. Because he's, he's like an old man to them, and they respect him, even though he was cursed by the Great Spirit. Now, what do you think these creatures were that, that you saw? I think they were either the spirit of dead Menominee from the past. But again, I'm not a spirit medium, and I don't get feelings from these things when I see them. They just terrify me. 
Well, the first thing that jumped into my mind was one of our previous episodes is the Fae, the little people was, uh, you know. There, there might have been Fae there, but there were full-size people in the woods around the rock. And then around the rock, there were little ones. Hmm. And those could have been the Fae. But again, as a kid, five years old, the first time you're going there, yeah. and you're seeing these things at night, you have no idea or clue yeah. the what they're trying to drag you into. And you don't want no part of it. You have any other tales or stories that you could add in? Uh, I used to see ghosts at my grandfather's house, but again, you're talking two or three years old. He was the first house in a little town called Duran. The very lot number one, when it was all farmland, he had this. Well, somebody else had the house. He later bought it. But by the time he bought it, there was a little town called Durand around this house. The house had to be, well, it's still standing. It's got to be 150, 160 years old. And when they used to try and put me to bed upstairs by myself, I used to scream and holler because dead things used to peek at me over the crib. Like rotting faced dead things. And that's, I never gave my parents a hard time going to bed in Chicago where I lived. Okay, it's bedtime. Time to go. You go to bed. But there, unless you were staying with me, I'm not going to do, I don't care if you beat my ass, hit me with a belt, but I'm not going in there. Did they ever try to do anything, touch you, or did they just appear and scare you? Well, it just scared the hell out of me because, I mean, I knew what rotting people look like at the age of two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, things a two-year-old should not know. That's not normal. You used to see faces in, in the reflections of the mirrors there. Like if you hit it from a different angle and it was showing part of the room over there, there'd be dead people standing there looking in the mirror. Hmm. So that goes back to the mirror thing. Yeah. My mother Portal says Gato. My mother says when she was a child at that specific house that the rocking chairs used to rock by themselves. And then when my grandfather seen it, he was like, Who left a window open? There's no doors or windows open. Who was rocking in that rocking chair? Dad, I don't know. It, it just started by itself. Well, when you see it rocking next time, you grab it and stop it. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's that's kind of weird. My grandma had this thing when we were kids that uh, you couldn't rock a rocking chair if somebody wasn't in it. It was like a bad luck thing. And and maybe maybe there's another reason why my grandma would say that. I'm, but yeah, like in my grandma's house, you couldn't have a rocking chair rocking with nobody in it. And it's very simple. Like, if if that happened, you had to stop well, it. Don't playfully was, go by and bump this it. This was just my mother saying that that thing used to rock by itself. Nobody bumped it. And that was his attitude was he was he was an old farmer type. I think he left home at 13, you know, real young and took care of himself across the country. So he was hardcore. Like, yeah. nothing scared him. Nothing. Not even ghosts. Well, that would definitely be what we would call residual you know, haunting yeah. type stuff where we would see something in, in paranormal investigations where a rocking chair would just rock, but the rotting flesh faces well, and stuff, now, that's, that's not residual. Now, that's remember something... I was two years old. Right. Right. And I used to always see things like that all around. And over the years, I think as a defense mechanism, my mind tended to start to block these visions out. I think that's Otherwise, very normal. To me, the unseen world is very real. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it don't exist. There are levels of technology we don't understand, but it's real. It's there. It exists. We don't understand how it works, but it's there. How could it not be there? I mean, we don't understand how a black hole works. It's not supposed to work the way it's supposed to. The way they say it does, 
yet they're there. They do what they do. We can't explain them. We don't know what they are, but they're there. Probably one of the most well-documented hauntings ever, and that would be the Gary, Indiana Demon House. In 2011, in Gary, Indiana, begins probably one of the most well-documented hauntings, uh, demonic possession cases, uh, depending on how you want to phrase it. Now, this is a story that I remember I first heard in the break room at work. They were playing the news on the TV, and it said something about you know this, this haunting case, this demonic possession case that was actually documented by child services, by police officials, by hospital personnel. And so it immediately jumped out at me. That, that's an interesting story. Yeah, this wasn't one you had to like go search and try to find, as you were saying. I mean, it got national attention on multiple news broadcasts, radio, television, everything. This came to popularity in January of 2014, but it starts in November of 2011. Latoya Ammons, her mother, Rosa Campbell, and then her three children, ages 7, 9, and 12, with the oldest being her daughter, move into a house. The first thing they notice, they're there a few days. Um, they have an enclosed porch uh, screened in, and it is overwhelmed by f- swarms of black flies. And they do everything they can to kill these flies, to get rid of these flies. They, But uh, it says no matter how many times they killed them, they kept returning. Now, this is an enclosed porch. It's December. This is not fly this season. This is winter. This is not normal fly season. Yeah, so this is already, you know, they, they, they immediately kind of notice something strange here. Now, the longer they're in the house, they start to hear footsteps coming from different parts of the home. Uh, the basement seems to be one of the places that is most most De- Definitely a hot spot. Active. They uh, they hear the doors for the basement and the cr- kitchen creaking open. Even when they secure these doors, they become unsecured, unlocked. They open up on their own. And then at some point they notice a shadowy figure of a man pacing back and forth in the living room that actually leaves wet boot prints on the floor as he moves back and forth. Now, we move on to, to March, March 10th, 2012. The 12-year-old daughter was having a sleepover when uh, screams were heard from her bedroom. When her mother and her her grandmother ran in to see what was going on, she was levitating above her bed. They prayed until the girl returned to her bed, and when they asked her what happened, she could not remember. Now, by this point, they had encountered, obviously, the the noises from the basement, the footsteps, the, the shadowy man walking through the living room, the boot prints, the levitation. They figured they had something going on. Latoya contacted local churches and most refused to hear her story. Finally, one of the churches told her that they knew that her their house had spirits in it, uh, but told her to clean the house with bleach and ammonia and then use oil to draw crosses on every door and every window to the house. Uh, she did reach out at one point to a clairvoyant who claimed that the house was besieged by no less than 200 demons. I actually heard as many as a thousand, but a lot. Yeah, at, at least 200. Yeah. So the clairvoyant's advice... Uh, was to move. So anyway, the clairvoyant tells them to move out. Obviously, they can't afford it. They're not a family of means. <clears throat> like you said, they were renting, so up and moving, everything they've got, not not really feasible. So th- instead, they told them they could make an altar. So they make an altar in the basement. Uh, they take a, cu- uh, a table, they cover it with a white sheet, burn a white candle on it, and then put a statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. And then they, they open a Bible, and they leave it open to Psalm 91. 
Psalm 91 actually reads, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the foul snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Uh, they also did a sage and sulfur smudging. To help clear the house of evil influence, which is pretty common, I think. Yeah. Um, nothing happened for three days. Three days. And then things got worse. Three days of peace. Uh, the children at this point began to become possessed, and, and so Ammon's herself, Latoya, became would become possessed on occasion. And when the children were possessed, it was evidenced by the fact that their eyes would bulge out of their heads, would have evil smiles, the, the voices would deepen and become scary, demonic sounding. Ammons herself, when she was possessed, described as feeling weak or lightheaded or even kind of warm. Those who witnessed her said that her body would shake violently. Uh, occasionally, the youngest boy would sit in a closet talking to another boy that only he could see. Uh, the oldest boy would describe what it felt like to be murdered and killed. Wow. Uh, for, for apparently no reason, with no prompting. The youngest boy once flew out of the bathroom as if thrown by a, an outside force. Uh, the headboard hit the daughter so hard one time in the head on her bed, it caused a wound that needed stitches. The daughter would also feel as if she were being choked, held down to where she couldn't move or speak, and heard a voice tell her that she would never see her family again, and on one occasion that she wouldn't live another 20 minutes. Uh, I know they reached out to their family physician on April 19th that same year, who apparently visited during the haunting. Now, he noted the behavior was delusional, uh, but he did say, obviously, that there were some unexplained things that he had never seen before. So uh, the medical staff did witness the boy being lifted and thrown into a wall while no one was touching him. And then at one point, the boys passed out. And no matter what they did, they could not wake them up. So someone from the doctor's office that was there called 911. Multiple police units and ambulances arrived. Uh, and they took the children to the hospital. Now, the, the boys woke up in the hospital. Uh, the older boy was acting rationally. You know, he seemed to be pretty normal. But the younger boy would scream and thrash to the point where it supposedly took five grown men to hold him down. Uh, at times, the youngest boy would start to growl with his teeth showing and his eyes rolled back in his head. Uh, and, and even at one point, he, he put his hands around his brother's throat and wouldn't let go no matter what until he was pried off of his brother forcefully. Later, she interviewed them again. The youngest did the same growling, you know, growling with his eyes rolled back, and then he would say, it's time to die, I will kill you. While the youngest was growling, the oldest headbutted his grandmother in the stomach. Uh, she grabbed his hands and prayed, and this is when one of the, the most interesting. The boy got a weird grin on his face, walked backwards across the room, up the wall towards yes. the ceiling, and then flipped over her hand, or over her head, while holding her hands the entire time, Landing on his feet. And apparently this happened more than once, but this was observed by everyone in the room. The The hospital chaplain contacted Father Michael Maginot. Now, he was a priest at St. Stephen Martyr Church in Merrillville. He interviewed Ammons and Campbell in the house on the 22nd. He noticed while he was talking that the bathroom lights were flickering and the blinds would swing back and forth of their own accord, <laughs> which he said indicated that the, the entities there were obviously displeased with his presence. Now, Father Maginot, in, in that time frame, would conduct three exorcisms. Two he would do in English, and finally one in Latin. Uh, the pain of being exorcised, Ammons described as being comparable to childbirth. Only, obviously, with the result being, you know, 
Not quite the same. Yeah, not quite the same. Now, as as he was doing these exorcisms, father the father would go and he would look up the names. He would ask for the names of these demons. And as he got these names, he would uh, try to look them up on the computer. And the computer kept shutting itself down just randomly as he would try to look up the names. Now, one of the names given, I'm not going to repeat the name. No. Of course, names are supposed to give them power. Yep. But it basically translated into the Lord of the Flies. Which hmm. goes back to the December Dude, flies on the porch. Yeah, the flies in the enclosed porch. Now, after the third exorcism, apparently Ammons didn't uh, experience anything more after that. And then she she would get her kids back, and they would eventually move out of the house. Yeah, I, I don't have the exact date that they moved out, but but later in 2012, after this was all done, but supposedly after the third and final exorcism, Ammons felt that she was freed of whatever influence, and and they she would move out. You know, so I, I gotta ask. Paranormal investigator to another paranormal investigator. You have the address, Bill. Gary, Indiana is really not that far from Lebanon, Missouri. Would you go to that site? Now, when I get involved in things like this, my wife's only instruction to me when I leave the house is not to bring anything home. So based on, on the accounts, the stories. Multiple accounts of that the, occurring. The people who, who have bad things happen to them after they leave, I got to say... No, I don't think I could go. <laughs> hard no, hard no. And I'm, I'm glad you said that because if you said, yeah, let's go next weekend, I would have to be coming up with some excuses yeah, of not being able to make I it. I don't think it's time for a road trip to Gary, Indiana, uh, at least not to that particular address. You know, that's It's one thing to do paranormal and some uh, ghostly investigations, but when you start getting into this type of uh, dark, demonic um, possession, yeah, hard no. want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together uh alex tudor you can almost call him our producer at this point sarah tudor who also helps with some of the technical stuff i want to take a moment to extend thanks to eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio i in turn would like to thank bill for one putting up with me and uh (laughs) using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing and thank bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.